0: Hey, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me best as Polyphonic.
1: And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to be talking about children's music. Is there um some direction that you wanted to start this off on, or do you want me to... like? Do you have any specific angle? Go ahead.
0: The first thing that kind of comes to mind that I wanted to start on is comparing children's music to... Other children's media, wherein children's music is very bizarre because I don't think that there is a lot of children's music that is kind of, you know critically acclaimed or successful among adults, which I think is very interesting because you look at young adult fiction that adults love. There's shows like Adventure Time or Steven Universe or things like that, which, and I mean, I love a lot of children's media. I, I consume a ton of children's media. I'm a big fan of it. You might be able to come up with a few examples, but by and large, that sort of critically acclaimed among adults, probably something like Adventure Time is probably watched by adults as much as children. That sort of thing doesn't really exist in children's music very much.
1: Well, I think for that, it's not to go all ghost notes on this, but like, I think it's important to look at sort of what we're calling, like, children's media, where we're drawing that threshold, especially, like, of age. Because on Netflix, I watched all of, like, Kipo and The Age of Wonderbeast, which everyone yeah. should watch. It's a fantastic show. I also watched all of Hilda, and also phenomenal, highly recommend. But when I look at those shows, those are aimed more towards sort of, I think, like, the preteen age range of, like, around 10 years old. Yeah. Whereas if you look at something like, you know... Paw Patrol like or... Like Barney, for instance. Yeah. Like... I don't think that there are many adults who watch Barney for fun. Are they still making Barney?
0: I don't. I have no idea. I don't know. That's a very dated cultural reverence. We're aging ourselves here.
1: Let's say Sesame Street, because I think that's still around. But like even Sesame Street, I think it's a thing that a lot of adults will say is good. But I don't think yeah. a lot of adults watch for fun. And in the same way, like we're not going to put on Baba Black Sheep just to yes. rock out to. It's a little too young to use the comparison of other like media forms especially television i think that children's television is probably the thing that crosses over most to adults uh in my experience
0: i would say books
1: as well like where the wild things are or stuff like that right yeah although i think that that's more nostalgic right like i might read where the wild things are and enjoy it because it's something that i remember but i wouldn't read a new thing that was targeted towards that same age range. Maybe you would. I'm not like that's just me.
0: But yeah, no, I definitely I see what you're you're talking about about the the kind of juvenile skewing younger. I think that's true to an extent. I think then then the question becomes why is there not as much of the kind of middle I would say there is a lot of music kind of explicitly aimed at teenagers that adults listen yes. to. You know, I would say like pop punk is a genre that is very teenage oriented. A lot of top 40 pop is very teenage oriented. But like the stuff in, yeah, like in that Hilda zone, in the, you know, Adventure Time, The Hobbit, that sort of like pre-adolescent or early adolescent art. Yeah. The it's
1: sort of pre-teen range.
0: I mean, I could just be completely missing some incredible music out there. But to me, it's not a thing that I've seen a lot, and it doesn't really seem to be,
1: like, something that is in the zeitgeist, you know? I think you're right. I'm 32, so it's possible that there is music being made for nine-year-olds that I haven't heard of. But, like, I think you are broadly correct. Partly, like, if you go back to the rise of the concept of modern popular music... A lot of that has to do with teenagers acquiring additional spending power. Yeah. Being able to go out and buy their own music in ways that, like, in a lot of previous generations, they couldn't. And so, and also it's tied to recording technologies and so many other things. But, like, there's still very much of that. And I don't think has infiltrated is a weird word to use, but I'm blanking on another one. So I don't think that's infiltrated as far down to, like, the point where eight-year-olds are going out and buying their own records a lot of the time. Like, I know when I was that age, most of my music was CDs that my dad had or that my mom had. Yeah. Because that was what was available, and, you know, I I don't think I bought my own records until I was at least double digits, probably, in my early teens.
0: I do think it's interesting, because when you're looking at the development of pop music, there is actually one act who was kind of... Integral to the development of that teenage pop music that does do a fair amount of children's music. And it's not like they are a children's music act, but a lot of their songs are children's songs. And that's the Beatles, right? Like the Beatles are, as far as I can think, I think the Beatles are the. Kind of exception to one of the few bands that things like Yellow Submarine, like that is explicitly a song for children. Same with Octopus's yeah. Garden or something like that. But these songs are kind of critically and commercially acclaimed in a way that, you know, something like The Hobbit or like Rolled Doll or something like that might be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's also groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary yeah. and stuff like that who also do like, Stuff that you could easily classify as children's music. Cause this is something that I've like actually done some not this specific question, but children's music in general, done some independent research on prior to this. And one thing that stood out to me when I was looking at like all of the children's songs I remembered from my childhood is that like most of them are over a century old. Yeah. Like You look at things like Baba Black Sheep and things like Mary Had a Little Lamb. A lot of these, the ones we can date mostly come from the 1800s or maybe the early 1900s.
0: And like kind of alongside that, there's a lot of songs that in the 1800s and like early 1900s were just folk traditional songs that kind of became children's songs? I mean, I don't think it's exclusively a children's song, but like Kumbaya is a children's song that is itself actually a folk spiritual, right? Like I, I don't know the origins of Baba Blacksheet, but it seems to me like its origins are in a children's song.
1: I believe so. But what, one thing that I think I noticed, because this goes back to like longtime 12 tone viewers may remember that like, in, I think in 2018, I did a video where I did like a corpus analysis of children's music. Sort of partly to demonstrate how to do a corpus analysis and partly to talk about children's music and, like, one of the things that I found is like if you look at basically anything that I was remembering as children's music, which I I, I made up my own list. I can't claim that this is like all the children's music out there, but like almost all of them were like four bar or maybe eight bar looping melodies, hmm. and a really like really simple. And again, like you were saying, written as children's music, but then. You know, you get the occasional thing like I've Been Working on the Railroad is a song that I very much think of as a children's song, but that thing's like 40 bars long. and yeah. or She'll Be Coming Round the Mountains in that t-
0: milieu too.
1: Yeah, stuff like that where it's just like you have more complex rhythms, more complex like note choices, wider ranges. It is much more like, oh, this is a folk song that works well enough as a children's song as well, whereas then you have things like Row, 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 Your Boat, or again, blah blah Black Sheep. There's just like, you look at them, and you're like, someone wrote this for kids. Yeah. Someone wrote this to be sung to children by children specifically for the purpose of being very simple.
0: I think that brings us to an uh, interesting like aspect that I wanted to talk about, which is this perception that music needs to be simple for children
1: to engage with it. Yeah. One thing that I definitely took out of that analysis was that like the sorts of things we do think of are simple in some ways, but also not in others that I think a lot of times part of the reason it's so hard to write a good children's song is that it's so tempting to make everything simple. It's so tempting to just simplify everything, do like very tiny range with basically no motion. But like one of the things I've found was that pretty much every song on my list jumped either from the root to the fifth or from the fifth to the root at some point in the melody it's a fairly important interval, but that's sort of the point, is that it's in, an important interval. And in it it's not like it's just the simplest thing. It's like, this is a big leap. It's hard to sing if you're not like a trained singer. But it's one of those things that we want to get children used to very early because it's a very important part of like the Western like tonal tradition.
0: Yeah, I think similar to like we were talking about earlier with, you know, you're like, Barney or Sesame Street or yeah. something like that. I think there is a level to which there's a lot of children's music that is kind of implicitly like this or explicitly didactic, yeah. right? Like it's trying yeah, to absolutely. teach either music fundamentals or you look at something like, you know, the Alphabet song, which I mean, that it, it is, what is it? Twinkle, twinkle.
1: It's also twinkle, twinkle. It's also Baba yeah. Black Sheep. It's also really interesting in that it's a very strong melody. Like, yeah. Back when I did that, like, rhythmic children's music collaboration, there's a reason I chose that one. It's a great melody. I mean, it's Mozart, right? <laughs> Is it? I'm pretty sure Mozart wrote
0: Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Don't think that's right. I feel like I would know that, but... So it's a French tune that Mozart did arrange once.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah. I was looking at my list, cause I, and I had the age, and I had it going back before would have made sense for it to be Mozart. But, you know, that that makes sense that he would pick it up. yeah. It's very in that style of like, you know, the classical period, not like classical lowercase, but like uppercase C classical music. That sort of like clean, strong melody with clear like roots and fifths. And it makes a lot of sense to me that Mozart would play around with it. Yeah. And this is something that you see in a lot of folk music traditionally anyway, is this reusing of melodies in new contexts. Like people will talk even about like the Star Spangled Banner and how that's a reused melody from Song of Albion, I believe, Albion on High, something like that. Yeah,
0: I mean, basically any folk song that you know, the melody can be traced back like hundreds of years. That's very common practice in folk music is tunes that exist just like out there that people know and people writing new words to these tunes or doing slight variations on arrangement. And eventually over a hundred years of that one song becomes another
1: song. Yeah. And it makes it like really easy to connect to. Like if you already know Baba Black Sheep, then you can sort of pick up the ABCs for free. And that's especially like the ABCs specifically, because again, like you mentioned, that's an educational song that's trying to teach you something. It's useful to have the sort of melody that you don't have to think about because you already know it in other contexts and it already follows rules that you're really familiar with. Like even if you don't know Baba Black Sheep specifically, if you listen to things like Mary Had a Little Lamb or like Old McDonald's, stuff like that, you can pretty quickly latch on to what's happening in the ABCs.
0: Yeah, This is a bit of a detour, but in folk song, that's often used. And actually, I guess it's not that much of a detour because it's used in this context where like you see it in a lot of folk songs, like a lot of union songs and stuff like that were adapted from melodies that people knew. So they'd already be able to sing them. And then they would learn the lyrics and the lyrics would, you know, speak to them and help them organize. And in the same way, the ABCs are teaching the basics of the alphabet to children through this melody.
1: Yeah, it sort of jumpstarts a lot of the process.
0: What's interesting, and kind of maybe this is getting into the kind of gap we were talking about, there is some younger children's music that isn't kind of like explicitly didactic. Like a lot of the Wiggles music, which by the way, the Wiggles are fantastic, like real absolute legends, but <laughs> a lot of their music is very much targeted at entertaining children than teaching children. Yeah. And They will do songs that teach but a lot of it is just kind of like having fun with
1: music. Yeah, I think a lot of children's music is, or at least is on its surface, right? You look at something like the Itsy Bitsy Spider. What do you learn from the Itsy Bitsy Spider? You learn that- Don't climb up webs. <laughs> don't climb up water spouts. Rain might come down. Growing up, the house I lived in, it wasn't set up like that, so I had no idea what a water spout was. I was very confused by that song. But it just like, you learn very little from the actual lyrics, but again- like, th- this is the part where I start saying the word enculturation a lot. But, like, part of what children's music does from a cultural perspective is introduce what we consider to be the most important ideas in music, right? Like, yeah. Again, we talk about, like, leaping between the root and the fifth. These are really important intervals, are really important notes in a key if you're doing, like, traditional European tonal harmony, which I think is, like, interesting because, again— like, a lot of this stuff is over a century old, and we're still, we haven't really revised the curriculum, as it were, even though a lot of these ideas aren't really as present in the music we're making today. And so, like, one thing that I find, like, particularly interesting on these sorts of things is rounds, right? Yeah, Things like row your boat, like, where... Do I have to explain what a round is? I'm going to explain what a round is anyway. Just Just to be safe. Yeah, just in case. Just in case. Uh, But you have, like, one person start singing a melody, and then they sing for a couple bars, and then they keep going, and someone else starts singing the melody after them, starting at the starting point again. And so you have sort of these overlapping statements of the melody. And this, like, in technical theory terms, this is what we call a perpetual canon. And... So, and a canon is something like Pachelbel's canon, where you basically do that, except that Pachelbel's canon continues forward, whereas a round will—you once you get to the end, you get to the end pretty quickly, and you repeat. So that's again these repeating four or eight bar structures. But like, that's surprisingly difficult as a concept, right? Like, it sounds simple because I grew up with it. I assume you grew up with it. I assume many of our listeners probably grew up singing rounds. But like, it's actually a really difficult thing to do, to hold your place in this melody. And because you're harmonizing, you're not all singing together, it's way more important that you stay in tune, which children are not great at. Believe me, I worked as a vocal tutor for children. It takes a lot of precision and takes a lot of focus to hold around in a way that is successful and satisfying. And we kind of don't think about that because we learned it as kids, but it's also like, a really complicated technique that we're learning to do as an introduction to more advanced forms of counterpoint when, for the most part, as adults, we're not really engaging with more advanced forms of counterpoint. That's not really the style of music we're doing anymore. It's interesting because when you talk about kind of
0: not updating the cultural ideas, what I think about now is there are things like there... Have you ever heard the, like, lullaby covers of rock songs or things like that? But those aren't actually really introducing the concepts that, you know, build rock music in, in any meaningful kind of way, right? I mean, some no. of them are nice. They're, yeah. they're calming. Most,
1: most of them are terrifying. A friend of mine sent me a, like, a marimba lullaby cover of In Bloom, Nirvana's In Bloom, the song that starts Sell the Kids for Food, that one? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that song? Yeah, there's a children's marimba lullaby cover of it. It's haunting. We
0: could get into those kinds of those yeah. kinds of things, and I've got I've kind of got issue with a lot of those things because I think a lot of those are kind of morally void cash grabs. That's again one of the things too, where in kind of the contemporary state of children's music, the other really kind of weird, terrifying space of children's music is these AI-generated, like, YouTube song videos. Yep.
1: Are you... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm. Yeah, I'm aware. I haven't delved too deep into it for the sake of my sanity, but I am aware.
0: Yeah, so for those that aren't aware, there's been some exposés on this stuff that's really, really fantastic, yeah. but there are kind of these AI-generated songs that will essentially just hit like it'll be like spider-man and elsa from frozen singing a nursery rhyme and they're soulless and terrifying but they're just kind of
1: trying to exploiting holes in the youtube algorithm
0: yeah and and capitalize the fact that you know you can just plop a child in front of an ipad and they'll sit and watch these songs for however long yeah and i think that actually gets to me with one of one of the big things that i think is kind of lacking in children's music going back to even where we started this conversation is there is not a lot of children's music about the experience of being a child you know like i think yeah. i think that's the thing with teen music it's fantastic there's a ton of music about the experience of being a teenager for teenagers and in yeah. terms of like like shows like the shows we mentioned or films you know there's a lot of great films about the experience of being a kid a lot of great books a lot of great narrative media but for a media that is so kind of you know music is its strength is emotional expression a lot of children's music there's not people singing about what it felt like to be a kid singing about the kind of big emotions that you feel as a kid. In my mind, it feels like a lot of the children's music being made now is flat and dumbed down, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, quite possibly part of why so much of the, like, the canon of children's music, as it were, hasn't really changed much in a long time, is that a lot of that was written by, you know, caretakers who are working with children, whereas I think... These days, a lot of what you see being made for children is being made by record labels and has a a much, much less intentional obligation of care, is is much more a cash grab, is much more about sort of, and this is like, this is slightly a tangent, but you know, it's, if you look at, at least in the US, the Christmas music scene, like most of what we have is getting close to a century old, most of the classics, and people will, every year, people will put out new Christmas records and they'll sell maybe some and then people will move on because the songs weren't that good. Probably romanticizing early Christmas music more than it deserves. I'm definitely romanticizing it more than (laughs) it deserves, to be clear. But, like, if you go back and look at a lot of early children's music, this was being made not just for children, but with children. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's a big part of it is that you look at, I mean, you, you look at a lot of the movies about being a child, about capturing that experience. A lot of them aren't actually for children, right? They're for adults trying to like be nostalgic. And you look at like kids' movies that are about being a kid. And those are things like, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Baby Geniuses, which is, that's going to date me.
0: <laughs> I, I was thinking like Land Before Time or something like yeah. that, you know? like yeah. I think that that's very much about being a kid and about the emotional ups and
1: downs of childhood. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But when I think of a lot of like the the media that I'm aware of that's like for kids and contains kids, it's sort of a lot of it is about sort of transcending childhood, is about sort of kids as superheroes instead of kids as kids, which is still, you know, kids still telling children's stories. But again, it's sort of coming from this perspective of people who are trying to sell something to children instead of people who have any like, Direct relationship with the children they're making the work for.
0: It I think it is important to note in this conversation that there are some really really fantastic children's entertainers out there. Like Rafi is a legend. Like the Wiggles. Like I mentioned earlier. Like I don't want to I don't want to sure. slander all of the uh, children's entertainers because I do really think that there are some doing really great stuff. But yeah, in general, it's odd to me. And disconcerting to me how much of children's entertainment, like you said, is kind of people in boardrooms hitting verticals that they know will perform well with children. Yeah. That's true of any media, but for some reason it feels prevalent to
1: me in music. Yeah, it's true for all media and it's true for all age ranges as well. One reason that I think, especially like at least in music, one of the reasons that I think that this shows up more overtly in a lot of commercial children's music than it does in other genres is that, like, the target audience is really not able to participate, right? Yeah, Like, children are not, like, four-year-olds are not great songwriters, in in my experience. They they don't write catchy melodies. (laughs) No offense to four-year-olds. Corey just coming out here and slandering the four-year-olds. Some of my best friends were, at one point, four-year-olds, there goes our four-year-old demographic. <laughs> all the four-year-old <laughs> podcast
0: listeners. Oh. We've lost them.
1: Well, this is how Ghost Notes ends. Yeah, no, I, I think, like, if you look at, like, a lot of the the music that speaks to teenagehood, like, not all of it, but a lot of it is is at least partly being made by teenagers, right? Like,
0: Or being made by people that are fresh out of being teenagers, you know? like early
1: 20s, but yeah, like, or you didn't see a lot of like 50-year-olds doing pop punk, but you know, you're starting to, but those are the people who were doing it when they were like 19.
0: I was just thinking as we were talking about kind of the corporatization of this, it's weird because I do actually think that one of the bastions of a lot of, of really good children's music is by the biggest evilist corporation out there in that like Disney musicals, there yeah. are a lot of Disney musicals that are really good and about, a lot of them are kind of skewing a little more young adult, but even so, yeah. like about the experience of childhood, things like, I mean, Encanto is incredible. It's an emotionally rich piece about, you know, childhood there are a whole lot of really fantastic stories. And a lot of them are written by, especially, I mean, we grew up in the Ashman Mencken era and like Ashman and Mencken could make music for kids about childhood. That was just absolutely astounding. Like they were real geniuses at doing stuff that is kind of fits that niche that I was saying earlier, doesn't exist a ton in music. But again, even then that's, because it's kind of tied to this tradition of film, which is a lot more accepting of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that what you're hitting on there is that, like, even going back to, like, the Barney example, a lot of these things, when we look at children's media, and especially children's music, it is a multimedia experience. It isn't as much separated out into that sort of 19th century romantic concept of the work itself as a thing that you sort of engage with as an isolated sonic artifact. It is a part of this broader experience. Music is not necessarily a background component. In many cases in Disney, it's sort of the point, but it is this thing that is part of a larger experience that is multi-sensory and multimedia and that you can engage with in multiple different levels and can capture all the different facets of your attention Whereas as we get older, we start to see more music that is just music without any other components. Yeah.
0: I mean, I wonder to some extent if that just is, you know, reflection of children's attention spans and the fact that it's hard to get children to sit still and listen to music that is just music. Like, I do think that that's definitely uh, an, an influence on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the stuff that isn't sort of attached to a movie or whatever, like a lot of children's songs are dances, things like Ring Around the Rosie, things like these that are supposed to sort of give you something to do to actively participate in. Yeah. Instead of just sitting there and letting someone sing a song at you.
0: It is actually, again, this is another tangent, but it's actually bizarre how much music, like in the modern age, it's bizarre how much music isn't tied to dance because yeah. for like most of history, music and dance are pretty intrinsically tied. And in a lot of places, they obviously still are. But yeah, well, and I think even Ring Around the Rosie is interesting because I think there are a lot of nursery rhymes and a lot of children's music that are games, right? Yeah. Uh, like an- another great children's song that is a game is Down by the Bay, right? Like that's I'm not
1: familiar. This might be a Canadian thing. I'm not sure. But what is this?
0: It's Rafi, I think, but it's essentially a song. It's an interactive song where you've kind of got the chorus and it's like, down by the bay where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go, for if I do, my mother will say, and then there will be a, did you ever see a, and then you do a rhyme thing. So it'll be like, did you ever see a goose kissing a moose down by the bay? But it goes around and it's interactive and like it's not like there are kind of specific no yeah, you're rhymes. supposed to make something up yeah you're supposed to make something up and i think there's there's a lot of children's music that falls into this like interactive space whether it be a dance or like patty cake is kind of a game uh allegedly i don't actually know how to do patty cake but um <laughs>
1: i've spent way too much time on patty cake in high school it's <laughs> just a trend with my like my friend group where we just like got really good at it <laughs> Do you have any elite patty cake insights for the audience? <laughs> oh, I'm well past my patty cake heyday. Uh, patty cake experts hate them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, when we talk about games, like I think back to like my time when I was a kid and I went to summer camp and we had like these songs that we would sing sort of like uh, at after meals, the whole group would come together and sing. And like we had things like John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt yeah, where sort of the whole deal is, you sing it, and then every time you get quieter and quieter, but there's this big shout at the end that everyone joins in on, and it it again it becomes a game. You're trying to see how quiet you can
0: get, or even something like the song that never ends is kind of a game yes. in its own way, right? Oh
1: yeah, the song that never, that reminds me of one of the like, the most bizarre findings of the time that I did that uh, corpus analysis. Yeah, is that apparently the version of the song that never ends that I learned is just completely wrong. <laughs> like, this is one of the few, like, wait, things on wait, my list. Okay,
0: I need to know, do we know the same version? It's the right lyrics. Okay, oh, okay. It's just
1: the melody. This is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friends. Yeah, that's, yeah. Question, do you go up for the line, my friends? This is
0: the song that never ends. I don't think I do. It goes do on go, on and just goes on, on my, and on, on my, friends, my friends. Or something like that. I think I just stay flat. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Sing
1: it? I I was.
0: This is the song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. Some people. Okay,
1: yeah. You're doing basically the same thing I do. Okay, yeah. Uh, But like, this is one of the few songs that like we have recordings of the earliest instances. This, we like, a lot of the children's stuff that we have dates back to before uh, widespread recording technology. But this one. I think was on a TV show was where this originated. And so we, we have like a definitive recording of what this song was supposed to sound like. But the version I learned, which sounds like the version you learned as well, changed things. And I think that sort of naturally as it passed through different groups of children, it started to take on characteristics that are more reminiscent of other children's songs. The range shrinks, basically like, again, because it goes up on the, to my friends. In the original, I believe the lowest note is the third of the key but like in basically every other children's song i looked at the lowest note is either the root or the fifth of the key and so that going up to my friends avoids that and lets you keep the fifth as the lowest note which is just something that i huh is just so intrinsic to the way that children's music is done in in these sorts of at least within the corpus that i looked at and it's just it's fascinating to me that like again it we have a record of what the song sounds like and it's just became something different to conform to a lot of these other ideas that the other songs are teaching.
0: Have you seen Tom Scott's video on Jingle Bells, Batman Smells? Yes. So for those that haven't seen it, it's a fantastic video talking about the, you know, Jingle Bells children's parody, the Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin laid an egg. And it explores the way that there are a bunch of different variations of that that have spread through kind of child groups to child groups, and it's interesting because that's something that happens with folk music, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah, and this is like classic ghost notes thing, but the thing we're talking about is a kind of folk music.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly. Children's music is one of the few places where folk music still kind of operates in this sense because, specifically because there aren't people, you know, writing down Like, you know, kind of locking in the lyrics or melodies or whatever, because a lot of it is happening
1: just on schoolyards. Organically, like you're learning these songs from like maybe a preschool teacher or often like from other children, like from the children who were there like last year and they'll sing songs and you'll pick up these songs. And so it has this long game of telephone that just slowly warps the music into whatever it makes the most sense to you. I remember like, like schoolyard songs. I I think
0: every schoolyard like kind of creates and warps its own little variations on this stuff. Like I remember for some reason, I have this clear memory of like when I was in elementary school for a while, like there was kind of a meme going around the schoolyard where people would come up with the melody was Black Sabbath's Iron Man, which again, actually kind of bears a lot of resemblance to a lot of kind of nursery rhyme melodies,
1: right? Well, yes, except that it's in minor. But I mean, just kind of in terms of its—it's very repetitive. It's—it's easy to learn. Repetitive, yeah. Relative simplicity,
0: yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I didn't. I don't necessarily mean. I mean more kind of like structurally than actually melodically. It was one where we would go around, and you would you know make something up for that. And I think I probably, I think I probably knew like the melody before I knew the actual song, because, like, I didn't really know who Black Sabbath were when I was seven. Blasphemous, as that may seem. (laughs) Uh, Polyphonic is a fraud.
1: Uh, I'm telling all your viewers.
0: That sort of stuff, like, I think kids are pretty ingenious with coming up with that sort of thing, and kids will come up with song parodies all of the time and play around with songs in a way that is very intrinsic to how folk music generally worked before the advent of recording technology right where it yeah. would just travel around and people would just throw their own flares and make up their own stuff and
1: and these sorts of things can also sort of settle knowingly within a culture right like it's not just you know you establish this thing yeah. and you you throw it away like i again to reference my summer camp experience because this is where a lot of my like children's folk music experience comes from like there were some of the camp songs they'd been singing for so long that they had sort of adapted parody lyrics based on historical events within the camp's culture. Just for one example, do you, do you know the song Green Grow the Rushes, Oh, Green Grow, is is that? I'll sing you one, oh, green grow the rushes. Oh, yeah, o. yeah, yeah. That one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's the, the way that works for anyone who does these like. It's sort of like uh, 12 Days of Christmas in that you sort of start with one and then you add two, but then you sing two and one and then three, two, one, and so on. Anyway, the point is at three, it sort of has a similar to like the five golden rings thing in the 12 Days of Christmas where it goes three, three, the rivals. But there was a, a dude like way before my time at this camp whose last name was Theriot. And he went by the nickname The Riot. And every time they got to that, he would just uh, stand up and shout, three, three, the riot. And that just stuck. And that's- now, I, I barely even know. I had to, like, think through, like, what is the actual thing that, follow, that this is supposed to be because I don't know because I learned this completely unrelated version that encapsulates some of the, like, cultural tradition of this summer camp in ways that I never actually experienced but are is part of my – sort of experience of the camp in retrospect, you
0: know? Summer camps are an absolute haven for that sort of thing. It would be really interesting. I'm sure someone's done it, but it would be really interesting to read some sort of musicological study on like camp songs yeah. because like the number of people it's it's so funny because I, I like I went to summer camps and I was a camp counselor and like anyone that was a camp counselor has this arsenal of songs. But, like, all of these songs have slight variations to different, uh, like, to different camps.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, when I was, um, this was, like, near the end of my, like, because I did some, like, counselor and training stuff at the summer camp. I never actually wound up being a full counselor. But, like, near the end of the years that I was going there, one of the counselors got the idea to, like, put together, like, a written songbook. But they just looked up lyrics for the songs online and just copied and pasted those into a book. And so many of them were just completely different from what we were actually singing. And it was weird because you started to see, like, once this was written down, once there were the things, people started to drift towards what was in the book, even though we knew the version. We knew what was supposed to be sung here. We knew what had been being sung at this camp in this song for decades. But now we had a written thing that was saying, like, no, it's actually the rivals. And we're like, okay, close enough. I mean, not that one. That one was sacred, but like a lot of things just became what was written because it was close enough. And that was, we had a written record and it was easier to give to new people, but it lost a lot of the signature of that environment.
0: Broadly, like that in microcosm is what happened to a lot of folk music, right? Is it became (laughs) a lot easier to just kind of refer to the, written or recorded
1: version. You you had a definitive version now, and it's just simpler, yeah.
0: Yeah, because the reality is that there isn't actually, like, a right way to sing any piece of music, right? Like, there's no way that is objectively proper to sing a piece of music, especially folk songs. Like, they're so malleable by their nature.
1: Yeah, that's the whole point.
0: Yeah, I didn't actually. I. It's interesting going into this. I didn't. Maybe I should have, but I didn't expect to get so deep into the parallels between folk songs and yeah. children's music. Because, but ultimately, like schoolyard rhymes, camp songs, nursery rhymes, like yeah. they're they're all folk music in their origins and even in their practice
1: today. Yeah, and absolutely, I agree. I really should have seen this Ghost Notes episode turning into talking about how the thing we're talking about is basically folk music. Yes, yeah. (laughs) That's not surprising in retrospect.
0: Yeah, it's given me an interesting angle because it is a sort of situation where, you know, you can look at a schoolyard and kind of get a sense of how songs like, you know, House of the Rising Sun or something like that, like evolved and changed over time to become what they are. It's kind of the same process as kids on the schoolyard.
1: Yeah, and again, especially if you look at something like Baba Black Sheep in, where you have these like multiple sets of lyrics that have either sort of been applied to or sort of evolved out of this same melody, you really start to get a sense of like you go back and look at like old records of like really old folk songs and like, yeah, this song that you're familiar with dates back to the 1300s. And you're like cool. Let me check that out, and you read the lyrics. You're like, this is nothing. This is yeah. nothing like the thing that I'm used to. This is not in any meaningful way green sleeves, except that it sort of is, you know. Yeah. And well, I remember
0: when I was doing my House of the Rising Sun video. One of the earliest versions of something that resembles House of the Rising Sun looks a lot more like St. James Infirmary Blues, like, (laughs) which is funny because fact is both of those songs probably just share a common ancestor or like mixed together uh, at some point, which, I mean, makes sense given their thematic content and stuff like that, too. Right. Like they're very similar songs emotionally.
1: And it opens up some, like, really challenging questions about where the boundaries lie between a song and a different song, right? Like, yeah, are Baba Black Sheep and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, are they the same song? Like, yeah. I think yes and no are both valid and reasonable answers to that question. And so, because it's, again, like you were saying, it's a folk tradition. And this one thing has sort of split off into two things and... It's not clear whether or not, because I think like, you know, from a music theory perspective, especially because like we love the things that we can do in staff notation, they do feel like the same song. But like when I was a kid and I was singing them, they did not. They felt like completely different pieces of music. And it wasn't until like I sort of, like later on started to reflect on them that I realized like, oh, this is going the same way. This is the same thing. But I felt like I learned Baba Black Sheep" and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and the ABCs all separately. Yeah. And um, they just happened to be easy to learn the second and third one, whichever they were. I don't remember the order. Kind of on that, it gets even
0: more interesting when you look at like, what about like, you know, what about that Jingle Bells Batman parody? Is that Jingle Bells? Yeah. It is and it isn't, right? Because especially something like that, like that's one that has enough cultural staying power that on its own, there are, you know, multiple different versions, different variations. I've got nephews who I'm sure could sing me like their version of it. And I'm sure it would be different than I was in school, but still recognizable enough to me. And also different than Jingle Bells. I mean, and Jingle Bells, as it was first published, I mean- was a very different song too. I actually talked about that in my River video. So yeah, you're right. It really it really breaks down the boundaries and gets into a real Ghost Notesy style question, which yeah. is what really is
1: a song. Yeah, not, that's not where I expected this children's music episode to wind up, but... I shouldn't be surprised, I, I yeah. shouldn't be... Yeah, <laughs> we have a brand. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say on that.
0: <laughs> going into this, I was starting from a point of thinking that there are wasn't kind of talking about a a lack of richness in children's music, but the more we talk about it, the more I, I still think what we talked about, there are some worrying trends, especially with consumerization of children's music and stuff like that. But I actually do think I've, I've convinced myself that there is a lot richer of a cultural tradition still present there in schoolyards and campgrounds than, uh, than I might've previously thought.
1: Yeah. And it, I do think it is probably worth taking some time before we finish up to talk about like the kids bops of the world and like those sorts of things and those like a foundational premise of my life and my philosophy is that all art has merit. Yep. I'm going to say that now and that should probably give people some indication <laughs> of what I'm going to say next. You're going to say kids bop especially has
0: merit. It's the most meritous. <laughs> the most merit. <laughs> Is I would
1: say, the most art. Yeah, it is the best art, yeah. <laughs> when you look at Kizbop and when you look at these sort of, like you were saying, like lullaby covers of rock songs and things like that, these are sort of a way of musically almost talking down to children. And this is what I have found in my life and the times that I've had to interact with children is that you really don't have to do that. Like, children are clever. They're smart. Yes. They're interesting. But... They think about the world differently because their experience is so different. And so, good children's music, and again, this is part of what I was talking about with these, like, you know, music written by caretakers, like in collaboration often with the children they're taking care of, is that like music that engages with children in ways that respect the sort of limitations of their experience without just assuming that they'll consume whatever and that you can just make garbage and it'll be fine. And uh, I hate calling music garbage. That does not make me feel, but you know. Yeah. um, Kids Bop is not great music. No. But I don't think that's the point. And that's, I think part of what makes it grating for me is that like you listen to Kids Bop and they'll do something like, you know, smells like teen spirit or something. And it's like you, like the people who made this, which are not the children singing mostly, it's, you know, a handful of, you know, bored producers who don't care about this project, almost certainly, they're not, like, trying to interpret Smells Like Teen Spirit in a way that's relatable to children. They're just, you know, pumping out something that sounds childy enough and it doesn't sit well with me, you know? I don't know that I have, like, a deep and complex take here. I just, I think that it's worth acknowledging that, like, you can make good and interesting music, that appeals to children. And like, we talk about people like Rafi and people like the Wiggles and like a lot of that is because they're having fun with it in the way that they expect you to have fun with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think even when we were talking earlier about Peter, Paul and Mary and the Beatles and stuff like that, I also think that's something that I think in the sixties, like there was uh, I think part of it is actually um, part of it is born out of kind of psychedelic culture. Um, but there was yeah. this real like celebration of innocence and the ch- and childhood and like a lot of that in a lot of hippie music and that was stuff that was kind of trying to do the same trying to you know embrace children yeah. and meet them yeah, like Puff
1: the magic dragon doesn't sound. Like a crappy version of an adult song. It sounds yeah. like a children's song.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's trying to meet children at their at their level and assuming that they have you know or or like something like you know Octopus's Garden lyrically it's very kind of like straightforward and whimsical. Yeah. But that is a that is a musically complex song. That is a oh, song. Absolutely that is doing really interesting, really sophisticated stuff
1: musically, and it is gorgeous because of it. That's part of it is that, like, you know, no one's writing children's music that sounds like Dance of Eternity. Yeah. At least not in Western culture. Not yet. Um, Those sorts of, (laughs) yeah, I just, I want to be clear that, like, I, I think even, like, when you look at cultures that do, like, additive meter much more naturally than we do, Like I think you're still not going to see something like A Dance of Eternity and something like that. But like, I want to be clear that a lot of these, all of these ideas of what counts as a simple piece of music are culturally specific. Yes. Just in case you have never listened to a Ghost Notes episode before and therefore have not heard (laughs) me say that 15 times, I just want to be clear on that point. You look at something like Octopus's Garden, and it's it's almost, and this is going to be kind of a weird analogy to draw, but I'm going to draw it anyway. Uh, I finished reading recently a book about J. Dilla, Oh, and cool. Yeah. highly recommend, by the way, it's called Dilla Time by Dan Charnas. Great book, incredibly well-told story about a very important musical figure. But anyway, uh, one of the things he talks about there is that the way that Dilla and a lot of the people he was working with, and this is, I think this part comes back from when he was uh, working as JD, just because there is a important distinction there in terms of the sort of work he was doing. But one of the things that was important to the way he was doing was this sort of simple complex so, like, if you zoom in, like a drummer, someone who understands a lot of these complex rhythmic ideas, will listen to a JD track and be like, what is going on? This is so weird. But like, you zoom back out and you just listen to the whole thing together, and it sounds simple. It sounds approachable. It doesn't sound like he's doing anything wild unless you know the sorts of things he's quote unquote supposed to be doing. And that's what makes the work so engaging without being alienating and i think that that's sort of engaging without alienating is the goal to my mind of good children's music and a lot of good music in general but like especially children's music things like octopus's garden you have to know that it's weird to know that it's weird if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah that does make sense yeah that's that's really interesting i want engaging and challenging i want nursery rhyme prog rock is all yeah. that i'm saying yeah. That's yeah. That's all I want. And none of this soft prog, like, Pink Floyd. No, I want, you know, split meters, multiple time changes. I want, like, you know, I want to hear that, that breakdown in the middle of 21st century schizoid yeah. man played on a marimba. Like, that's...
1: You want old math Donald.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> old math Donald. <laughs> I don't think that there's really that much to say about them, but I think in this conversation about children's music. As in mo- uh, most of our conversations, the shags do
1: bear, yeah. they're worth oh, mentioning. Always, always, Listen to the shags, play the shags for your baby. Yeah. Expose your children to the shags before two years old for best <laughs> musical results.
0: I do actually think in general, that's something, and I mean, everyone everyone who has never had a kid is the greatest parent ever and knows everything oh, about parenting, right? Yeah. But I, I am interested, like, I'm sure I'll play children's music when I have kids, but I'm also interested in just exposing my kid to adult music and the music that I love.
1: I mean, studies show that if you play Mozart for your baby, then...
0: They become Mozart. Nothing will happen. It's definitely something that I'm, I'm interested in treating my future children when it comes to music with, you'd call it a level of respect of their intellectual capabilities. And the thing is, like, there was kids' music that I loved as a kid, but also, like, my favorite band as a kid was Great Big C, and their adult music, folk music, uh, actually, come to think of it, I absolutely loved them as a kid, and, like, there's, I think there's a lot of stuff that, again, just what you said earlier, like, kids are, kids are smart. Uh, Kids are able to comprehend complex emotions. Kids are able to understand music and kids kids are able to have taste you know like the kids again it's easy to say as someone who doesn't have a child but i i think that just slapping on algorithmically generated nursery rhymes is a disservice to children
1: yeah i'm just hedging a little bit because again ed's also don't have children don't want to be giving too much parenting advice yeah I, i think that it's for me, more about like meeting kids where they're at. And, you know, I don't think that like letting a kid watch some algorithmically generated whatever is, un- except, you know, once you go down, a lot of that stuff is actually really messed up. Like, that's, yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen the Dan Olson video, watch that for a good yeah. explanation of yeah, what we're it. talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, and so that specific example, I would agree. Uh, but when, like, I look at something that Kids Bop, I don't think Kids Bop is like doing harm to the world or anything. Like, I, I just like I think back to my experience as a kid, and besides bands like Peter Paul and Mary, bands like you know the Wiggles. Oh, I don't didn't really listen to the Wiggles, but that that sort of band. I never really listened to like kids' Bop, I never really listened to the stuff like that. I listened to Jackson Brown. I listened to you know Cat Stevens. I listened to Elton John. Yeah. I listened to Traffic. Like. From way too young an age to be listening to Traffic, I was listening to Traffic.
0: There's no too young an age to be listening to Traffic.
1: (laughs) One of my first favorite albums was the Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. I did not have all of the context to put that (laughs) name in. um, (laughs) (laughs) What an album. But it's still, it's a great album. It's a great song. Like. Anyone who hasn't heard the low spark of high heeled boys, look it up. It's like ten minutes long—the th- song, not the album—but it's it's so good. It's such a good song. It is a hugely underrated
0: song. I mean, this yeah. we can leave this on the cutting room floor. Floor, but I like—I <laughs> have distinct memories of the first time I heard that song. It was on the radio when I was driving. I was like eighteen years old, and I was like, "How how have I not heard something this good before?" You know, it's like it was one so of those things good. where I was like, it felt like one of those songs that I should have like. Heard a thousand times, you know. Yeah,
1: and just to be clear, we're not leaving this on the cutting room floor. People need <laughs> okay. to know how good that song is. <laughs> Next week, yeah, play it for an your hour, hour on the they'll, low they'll spark high
0: boys. <laughs> I don't really think there's that many lesson takeaways from this. I think this was just no. a fun explorative yeah. episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if there's any lesson, it's just like you know, children are people and they deserve good music.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well. With that, thank you all so much for joining us. Remember that all music is bad, and you should hate everything. Bye.